Welcome to The Read Along, a mini book club for your ears, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. I'm your host, Scott. I'm your other host, Anita. And join us on a journey through a good book, one, one chapter, chapter at, at a time. This episode of The Read-Along is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. Winter is coming and energy usage for all Albertans will be increasing, so now's a great time for you to look at your utility bill and ensure you're on the best plan. Albertans have a choice who they pay their utility bills to, and Park Power is happy to provide free, no-obligations comparisons. If you decide to switch providers, it's easy, and you can feel good knowing you're supporting local business and helping give back to your community. Learn more right now at parkpower.ca. Starting a new job is always an uncertain time. Yeah. You have that orientation, you have to meet a whole bunch of new people, you don't know the office politics. You don't know where the bathroom is. Exactly. And uh, it can be it can be a stressful time. An exciting time if it's a job you're excited to do, but a stressful time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's been a long time since I've started a new job. Like, I've been at my job for 17 years. Well, it's a long time. Yep. You kind of sort of started a new job. It's more recently than me, anyway. Um, yeah, I, uh, I did start a new job three years ago. Um, prior to that, I had been working uh, for near a decade at the radio station. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was time to move on. And I suppose... Transitioning to the work from home model, which lots and lots of people have done because of, you know, pandemic, it's not quite like starting a new job. Oh, no. It's more like a big shift. Definitely a shift, not like starting a new job. Yeah. You don't you don't really need to relearn much when you're working remotely, and uh, you do know where the bathroom is, so. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. And the fridge is always stocked with my favorite snacks. There are lots of perks to working from home. You like your cubicle mate? I happen to be in love with my cubicle mate. It's great. Go. There you go. But it, it's interesting that you want to talk about this because uh, Jebby's sort of in the opposite situation. Well, the the only real difference is that Jebby is being put into a job that they don't want. Well, not so much. Well, yes, that too. But I was thinking more like we brought our jobs to our home. Jebby now lives at their job. It's true. Right? So. Slight difference. Slight difference. Just saying. Well, I mean. To an extent, that would be true for anybody who, say, moved to a new city to start a new job. Because if you're starting, like, to a certain extent when you do that, you are moving in with your job because you don't know anybody else. You're starting fresh in a new location. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, I mean, it's a little different because, yes, you will start to make a social circle in your new environment, but uh, to an extent, you're you're kind of moving to the job. I suppose the closest real-world comparison I could make is if you have the kind of job where you work from home and you change cities to do it. I suppose. That's the closest real-world comparison I can make to what Jebby has just done. Well, we will get more into Jebby's orientation with their new job Mm -hmm. as, uh, as we get into the chapter, but first a brief recap of our previous chapter in which Jebby is saddled with that job that they don't want and get kind of shown around for the first time in the new environment they're going to be working in in a secret underground lair 
where the Empire of Razan is building a war dragon. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and they also learned the horrible truth about how automata are painted up to work. And that is with the breaking down of older art. And we'll learn more about that as we get into Chapter 5 of Phoenix Extravagant by Yoon Ha Lee. So Jebby is settling into living in a secret underground lair and uh, wonders kind of if their friends or family have even noticed that they're missing. If Armor has told anybody what's going on. Oh, I doubt Armor has told anybody anything. Like, does Hack know where they are? I doubt it. Does Bongsunga care? Because I think Bongsunga Bonsunga kicked Jebby out. I think Bongsunga cares. I think Bongsunga doesn't know. It depends on how long Bongsunga will hold a grudge. Just saying, like, if Bonsunga is still mad, they might not care yet. Care yet. She will probably care at some point, and I'm sure the other people in Jebby's life will start to notice their absence eventually. Here's, here's the weird thing about that, though. Jebby didn't apparently have too many people in their life. They Not were really. a fairly sheltered artist. By their own admission, they were a fairly sheltered artist. They knew Hack and a couple other people, it's implied, but they also lamented they didn't really have many friends in the art circle. Mm. They didn't know the people who Bong Sunga was associating with. So, yeah, unfortunately, th- maybe this is just a, another thing that made Jebby the perfect candidate. Like you were talking about Not too last... many connections on the outside. Not too many connections, yeah. Well, it depends on how much of a social butterfly Jebby was before. Because I genuinely don't know. The book didn't really talk about it. Jebby knows hack well enough to crash for, uh, what, a week? So depends on how many lives they touched and how often that, uh, that sparks the, hey, I haven't seen this person in a while, and I wonder what happened to them conversation. Whether or not Jebby knows people on the outside, they do start to get to know some of the people on the inside. Um, They start to associate a little bit more with the team who are working in the lair and uh, quickly learns that Sean, who is the only one who initially warms up to them, is actually very unpopular. (laughs) Probably because of the nature of his work. Which, Which, unfortunately, or fortunately, he's very good at. I would say, unfortunately... He is very good at. Apparently, he's also a bit insubordinate, but the uh, ministry puts up with it because he is so good at his job. Like, he's irreplaceable, and so he knows he can get away with giving people a little more lip than others might. Yeah, this is one of those situations where you better be really, really good at your job. Like, you better make sure you're irreplaceable if you're going to be a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. He's a jerk, but we keep him around because he's the only one who can do what he does. Jebby also finds themselves growing more fascinated by Vey. Yeah, this is this dangerous territory, this. Yeah, finds themselves getting attracted to her kind of despite themselves. And has to keep reminding themselves, you know, Vey is a trained killer and is clearly here partly to keep me in line. So I should not be having, like, butterflies, but yeah. here we are. I mean, a person can't help their feelings. It's true. A person can help their actions, and I think Jebby is smart to not give in to any of their attractive impulses. Yeah, Jebby hasn't made any any sort of moves and doesn't really tip their hand. Like, if I knew Jebby as a person, I would sit them down and be like, okay, sweetie, don't crush on your boss. (laughs) 
Maybe let's examine why we are attracted to deadly killer people. Maybe let's not do that. At least let's try not to do that. Okay. Now, not helping the matter is that the two are spending a lot of time alone going over Isemi's notes, trying to piece together what was left behind. Right? So they actually have to work together a lot in close contact. This is is bad. Yeah. This is bad. And part of the problem with that is Isemi's notes are quite a mess, actually, because they were written in cipher. Well, because they are working on top secrety things. Yeah, but the downside is that neither Jebby nor Vey can make heads nor tails of it. To be fair, that was probably done by design. Yeah. Because Asemi, like, basically Asemi and her assistant. Mirhai. Thank you, Mirhai. We'll learn more about Mirhai this chapter. Yes. They're working on a top secret project. Yeah, and they're... It was probably in the rules. Please make this super top secret. Uh, Further to that, they're actually working on a secret project on top of a secret project, which we'll get into. The layers of secrecy and top secrecy. Clearly, there was a reason for uh, writing in code. And Jebby can't help but wonder if Mirhai maybe took anything that might help them crack that code. But Vey honestly doesn't know. Um, So a couple things we learned during this conversation. Number one, um, Mirhai was actually hired as a package with Asemi because Mirhai was already Asemi's apprentice at the time. Yeah, they kind of came as a set. She also disappeared the night of the massacre. And uh, the last she was seen, she was like booking it out the West Gate. Vey is clearly upset talking about this subject. And it's made apparent that she kind of takes Mirhai's disappearance a little personally. Well, because she, Vey even says outright that that she was friends with Isemi. Like, they had developed a friendly relationship. Yeah. They were, like, personal contacts. And I think, my guess is, uh, Vey feels a little betrayed by well, by all of this. Yeah, and I mean, Vey is clearly suspicious of what was going on, and we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, put a pin in that. But the fact that Mirhai abandoned the ministry and just took off after the accident, Vey takes that as, like, a lapse in honor, basically. Yeah. And, and, and Vey in... very much sees things from a lens of what is honorable and what is not. Oh, yeah. So, well, she's a duelist. Yeah. And not even a I quit storming out thing. No, like, just vanishes in the night. Yeah, like yeah. snuck away on the lamb, run, run, run. Jebby also makes the observation that Vey mentions Hefandin a lot, but never his superior because he is the deputy minister and kind of asks about that. And Vey explains, oh, the actual minister of armor is based in the capital and doesn't really leave. She just disseminates orders. So in District 14, the deputy minister is the highest ranking member of the ministry and is, for all intents and purposes, the boss. Yes. And people often conflate the two because they never see the actual minister. It's not uncommon for people to slip up and just call him the minister. Right. Well, deputy minister, you just shorten that to minister. Yeah. Jebby also asks after Arazi's purpose, and Vey kind of explains, well, it was designed as a tank killer, basically, because it's airborne, if it's a dragon. It can breathe fire, presumably, if it's a dragon. So you get over tanks, you blow them up. That makes sense. That tracks. Yeah. And Jebby's like, but the Empire are the only people who have tanks. (laughs) Why would you design something to blow up your own army? And Vey is like, ah, you're thinking regionally. Arazi was designed to take on Western tanks because that's what armor is focused on, is a, is a looming conflict with the West. And Jebby's like, it seems like a really bad idea to pick a fight with the West, but I'm not in charge. Because uh, it's a really bad idea to pick a fight Period. with the West. Well, with yeah. anybody. Yeah, with anybody. 
So, Well, yeah. and I mean, as I recall earlier in the book, and, and this is off the top of my head, I didn't look back, um, we were told that the Empire of Razan actually obtained a lot of their higher tech from the West. And through either duplicitous means or, or trade, um, I think it was hinted at that they maybe stole the technology from the West. So there's the possibility that when you're talking about the Western powers, you're talking about people who are maybe a little more technologically advanced than Razan. So maybe picking a fight with them is a terrible idea. Agreed. Yeah, hard to say. This is incredibly irresponsible speculation. <laughs> yeah, but that's what we do best around here. Jebby is also curious about exactly what happened during the massacre and finds that they're getting frustrated with their efforts to learn more about it. Uh, the others in the department are really squirrely talking about it. And Jebby gets the impression it's because they don't want to speak ill of the dead or they're, uh, they find it like a really morbid topic. And Jebby's like, but... I need to know what went wrong so I can fix the wrong. Okay, well, the problem here is twofold, I think, for Jebby. One, no one wants to talk about it yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah. It's horrible. It's morbid. It's secret. And secret is definitely part of it because Jebby definitely gets the impression that Vey and the other people working on the program aren't telling them everything. Yes. Also... The second fold of that is, it was a massacre. Yeah. If there were a lot of survivors to talk about it, maybe they would. But what makes it a massacre <laughs> is that a lot of people died. So a lot of your firsthand information is lost. Yes, but, I mean, uh, a unit did arrive on the scene to deactivate and dismantle Arazi. Yeah, afterwards. But you do some investigation and you can kind of piece together what happened. And presumably there might have been survivors just because we haven't heard of any. Hmm. Still, you don't call it a massacre when you have a lot of survivors. That's true. As Jebby's days, um, let me take that back. So as Jebby's days kind of start to blur together, living in an underground lair with artificial light. Days become weeks, become months, become years. Oh, they definitely haven't been there for years. They a, maybe a, have been there for weeks. Need a a pandemic. Yeah. They kind of focus in on what they can do for the time being, and that is uh, learning the grammar and how to piece it together. And they do this under the tutelage of a person named Nahen, who is apparently a, a senior person who's been on the program for a while. Yeah. And is, is very familiar with how the, the grammar is put together in order to animate the automata. And uh, we learn that the grammar does need to be very precise and clear um, because the Empire of Razan doesn't want the automata to have any possibility for interpretation in their orders. Right, because if, uh, if you word it kind of funny, that means that the uh, automata gets a choice yeah. between, you know, A and B. Yeah. And you don't want that to happen because too many free choices can lead to free will free, free will and therefore disastrous outcomes well it, it can lead to uh it can lead to chaos uh the idea is the automata should always act in a predictable way yes and so you want their orders to be very clear and precise and when it's not that way you end up with a rogue yeah doing its own thing and, and that's unacceptable when you're dealing with a robot army. One of whom is a dragon. Yeah. They also take some lessons from Sean on breaking down artwork into pigment. Though they find it very distasteful, they recognize that it's useful to know how it's done. Um, we learn that he's using a magical mortar and pestle, blessed artifacts that Jebby is certain were not designed for this task. Oh, yeah. 
he also confirms that the art must be from a dead artist. Yeah, I found this whole bit to be quite fascinating. They did apparently test using recent works by living artists, which makes sense. Like if you're if you're trying to make magical pigments based on art, you could hire a bunch of artists to make art that you just grind down. Yeah. Not a problem, but apparently doesn't work. Well, doesn't work. Artist needs to be dead, the art needs to be irreplaceable. That is how it works. Um he also lets slip that they don't use precious Rosane artwork. Goodness no. No, it's too precious to be wasted like this. No, no, no. Yeah. It hurts my soul yeah. a little more every time. Now this kind of lesson leads Jebby to a realization, wait, if the artist has to be dead for their art to be able to be broken down into pigment, couldn't you test someone's art to determine if they're still alive or not? And Sean's like, I mean, theoretically, I guess that's possible. But, I mean, it's not a divining tool. You wouldn't learn anything other than are they alive or are they dead? But Jebby's kind of working through this might be a way to figure out if Mirhai is still alive. Because yeah. we know that Mirhai's in the wind, but we don't know if Mirhai is dead. No. And people, there's a bounty on Mirhai's head. People are looking for her. Mm-hmm. So could we not, like, find some of her sketches or something? Break it down, see if it makes pigment or not? Because then we'd know. And Sean's just like, that seems like a terrible waste of time. <laughs> like, I, Only he's, kind of. He's very evasive about the possibility of doing it, is, is the point. But in this case, I would argue that would still be helpful. It could be. And, and definitely Jebby is absolutely uh, considering it. I... I was pondering this for a little while about mm-hmm. how it works. And I wonder if it doesn't have something to do with the artist's soul. Could be. Because while uh, an artist would put a lot of, of passion, right? A piece of their soul into their art, mm-hmm. right? But since they're still alive, they're still mostly using their soul. Ah, uh, But maybe once they're dead, their soul kind of enters into the art. Yeah. Oh, so then uh, in this case, you're dealing with absolute necromancy. Uh, I, and, I suppose it would be a version of that, wouldn't it? And you're consuming ancestor spirits in order to power your automata, which is, if anything, even more horrific and blasphemous. Yes. That's assuming I'm right. I might not be. I, I'm sort of, uh, that's me just kind of taking a wild stab at how it works. Uh, we, and we might learn more about it. Absolutely. There's um, so much book left. Indeed. So uh, we kind of come up to one morning toward the end of the chapter, where Jebby, first of all, accidentally makes some physical contact with Vey, resulting in a very awkward moment. But Vey kind of laughs it off and is just like, you've been super guarded around me and you don't need to be. I'm not your enemy. If you approach the job that you're supposed to do honorably, and she uses the specific word honorably, mm-hmm. then you have nothing to fear from me. And Jebby's like, I don't know if that's true, and so I'm still going to be super guarded around you. You are still a very dangerous person. Oh, incredibly dangerous. They also learn in this little exchange that Isemi had painted a triptych at some point, which is what the the secret lair actually earned its nickname, the Summer Palace, (laughs) because it was this beautiful triptych, and it's gone, and nobody knows what happened to it. Vey actually wonders if uh, the ministry maybe broke it down or something. Maybe. But they definitely lost track of it. And it seemed important to note, I guess would be the best way to put it. Yeah. Um, it's It was important enough to bring up in the novel, so I want to make a note of it because it might come back into... Yeah, it might. ...into effect. I actually wonder if Mirhai maybe stole it. I so was that, thinking the exact so that, same thing. So that it could not be broken down. 
maybe not. Oh the, my god, I just had a I just had a brain. Cell. I was gonna say not that it might not be broken down, but maybe it means something. Maybe there's something in it. There's some there's some cipher, some key, some code in that art. I'm gonna put a pin in this because I have a th- just formulated a theory. All right, you want to talk about it now while it's still nope. in your brain? We'll get we'll we'll come back to it. All right, uh, because we're almost at the end of the chapter, so uh, we'll we'll kind of get through the last of our our little notes here. Jebby and Vey go to check out Arazi with some of Asemi's last notes, basically, because Jebby has put together a rough framework for some grammar that they want to try on the dragon. Uh, they have like the the notes mm-hmm. that Asemi had put together for the glyphs that were being used prior to the last test that yes. went awry. And it's here that Jebby makes a startling realization that no one has noted up until this point. The grammar that Asemi had approved to test on the dragon is different than the grammar she actually used on the dragon. Slightly. Enough that it was clear sabotage. Yes. Okay. This is going to lead into a great big discussion because you and I were talking about this earlier mm-hmm. before we before we got on microphone about where the sabotage actually is and what actually happened. Well, yes, because from what Jebby can determine, the dragon was sabotaged in such a way as to make it a pacifist. Yes. Like uh, Asemi essentially gave it orders that shut down its offensive capabilities. The I dragon, the exact wording of it. The the point is the dragon is incapable of violence. Or would have been at the time of the mask under that under that grammar. Yeah, because obviously the mask was removed. The dragon is no longer under that order, presumably. Now Vey is an, very guarded about these allegations against her friend, but also doesn't seem too surprised to learn this, which brings us back to that earlier point. Vey was suspicious something was up. That's pretty clear. Because this is one of those, I am not shocked to learn this information moments. Right? Either and that or Vey just has no emotion, uh, no, no emotional reactions whatsoever. No, Vey has shown some emotional reactions previously in this chapter. Slight ones. She's guarded. She's That's what I mean. in control. But like when Jebby first makes the allegation, Vey is like, choose your next words very carefully. You are impugning the honor of a friend of mine. But then when Jebby shows the evidence, Vey is also like, I'm not surprised by this and I need to report it up to my <laughs> no. superiors. Uh, like, <laughs> but And that's what I mean. Like, she's very cool, very collected, very in control. Yeah. But this does bring us to a new mystery, which is if the dragon was incapable of violence at the time of the test, how did violence happen? All right. So... What we have here is a top secret onion. Yeah. It is, it is full of layers, and the deeper you go, the worse it gets. One final note before we get into that, because we're right at the end of the chapter. <laughs> before this is we the get end into my top five. secret onion. We also learn that Phoenix Extravagant is the name of a, oh. of a pigment meant for incredible destructive power. Yes. And that is the title. They Title drop right here. That's the name of the book. But they don't tell you what color it is. Just that it is a color. Well, it's a magic color. Yeah. But it's it's a pigment. Well, she uses the term blue earlier. My guess is someone phoenix, uses the the term blue. I don't know. If my it's guess gay. is it's probably some kind of red or orange based on the word phoenix, and the fact that it is associated with destruction. But what do I know? Ah, anyway, it's like our friend who painted her kitchen flaming sword. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> what color is that? And now tell us about your top secret onion. All right. So this top secret onion. Okay. So the suspicion is that. Isemi changed the grammar on the dragon to make it a pacifist. So the massacre shouldn't have happened. So the question, so many questions. Did the massacre actually happen? 
presumably because people showed up after the massacre and were like, there was a massacre here. Was it actually the dragon? That was is there a massacre question. and they're blaming this top secret dragon? And then they went, oh, wait, no, that's top secret too. So let's cover up that as well. Is it a double cover up? Was there a massacre and they blamed the dragon and then they covered up the dragon? Right? Like, well, it's possible layers. that Razan assumed that the dragon committed the massacre, but it's something else or someone else mm-hmm. committed it. Was Isemi trying to cause a massacre or stop a massacre? I have come up with a theory. I've stumbled onto a major company conspiracy, Mac. How about that for stress? What the hell are you talking about? This company is being bled like a stuck pig, Mac, and I got a paper trail to prove it. Check this out. Take a look at this. Very good. Is this, this, is, what... this is me pulling out that pin from earlier. Very good. Mirhai disappeared the day of the massacre. Yes. So she knew something was up. Yes. She picked up a bunch of Asemi stuff and ran with it. And she did it out the West Gate and hasn't been seen since. And we know that this all-important triptych that Asemi had put up also disappeared around that time. The ministry has completely lost track of it. I posit Mirhai took it with her. Okay. I posit Mirhai took it with her so that they could not use it to check if Isemi is still alive or not. Which leads me to believe that Isemi has faked her death. Oh. Okay. I'm putting together clues from this chapter because Jebby asks, could we use someone's art to check if they're alive or dead? And Sean is like, yeah, absolutely. It's the only thing you'd find out. Everybody is pretty sure Isemi was killed by that dragon. And conveniently, the most noteworthy piece of art that Asemi left behind disappeared with her assistant. Ah, most noteworthy. Only piece of art? We haven't heard of anything else. Only Asemi's notes were left. And notes probably don't count as art, hey? Mirhai took off with a bunch of Asemi stuff. That's what we know. And the triptych was amongst it, clearly, because the triptych disappeared at the same time. So I posit Mirhai took all of Asemi's art so they could not check if Asemi is still alive. Interesting. And is meeting up with Asemi somewhere. Okay, but then why would Mirhai risk her own life by running? I mean, she had to get... they. Someone, why not fake her death as well? Someone had to take the art. Seems like a risky plan. Perfectly plausible. Perfectly plausible. I think you have a, a reasonable... I don't know what to call it. I'm going over to our chicken board. <laughs> I'm putting Isemi's picture back up. Okay. Because I don't... I I now suspect Isemi might not be as dead as the book has led us to believe. I mean, it's possible. It's a great way to get yourself extracted from a project you don't want to be involved in anymore. Yeah. Sabotage the project in such a way that it can't do violence, but uh, arrange for violence to occur that could be blamed on the project and disappear in the ensuing chaos. You're it, asking someone to risk their life for you, uh, though. But Mirhai has been a semi's apprentice for years. Yes. There is clearly a bond of loyalty there. Mirhai joined the project with Asemi. No questions asked. Fair enough. I'm just saying. Mirhai put her life 100% on the line to do this. Well, let's presume that Mirhai was also in on the sabotage. That means that the two of them were working together to sabotage the project and turn uh, Arazi into mm-hmm. a pacifist. So, But Mirhai knows if she's ever found, she's dead. Yeah. She's it's, dead. It's definitely a risk, but if you're loyal to your senpai. And if you really believe in the cause. And you really believe in the cause. I, yeah. No. It's it's a very Canadian thing. Yeah, no. <laughs> but you're you're right. You it is very, very plausible. 
It's just me putting together disparate clues. And then the we, we were talking about the triptych and it dawned on me, because we had just been talking about mm-hmm. what Sean and Jebby had been talking about, that a good reason to make sure that none of Asemi's art was left behind was so that no one could check if a semi was, was still alive, alive by breaking down the art to turn it into pigments. Do we know if they have a semi's body from the massacre? I presume that there was not much left after the massacre. They have not suggested that they have a semi's body, just that a semi is presumed dead. My well, they guess, don't say presumed dead, they do say my, murdered. My guess is that the dragon was assumed to have burned everyone to a crisp, so they might have some charred corpses. Again, we're talking about a, a dragon robot. I assume it breathes fire. <laughs> That's an assumption, a big assumption, but my <laughs> assumption is that it breathes fire. I, not a wild assumption. We have not been actually introduced to what precisely Arazi is supposed to be able to do. But I'm assuming that there were a bunch of charred corpses left behind. Hard to check yeah. if a semi's corpse is amongst them or not, if they're all burned to a crisp. Because it's it's also in my head just as possible that there is a key to the cipher in the artwork, which is why she took it and ran. Also plausible. I mean, could be both for all we know. Right? Like, if they have Asemi's body, or have seen Asemi's body, and they know for sure that Asemi is dead, and we are assuming that the artwork is meaningful, yep. We, it could be either of these things. It's true. Right? I suppose it depends on whether or not they have a body. But which we don't know. No, we don't. Well, uh, maybe we'll find out as we move into chapter six. I feel like this is a good place to to stop things for now. Let's let's ruminate on what we've discussed. Let's let's not speculate too wildly. (laughs) Let's actually let the book tell its story. Yeah. Uh, So you'll want to read up on chapter six in time for next week. In the meantime, you know, not every artist works for the government. Some of them uh, need endowments from other sources in order to uh, pursue their lifelong passions. And there is a way that you could be involved with putting together endowments, potentially for the arts or for other charitable causes, uh, right here in Edmonton. And that is through the Edmonton Community Foundation. And they have a podcast talking all about that. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Bonkink. I'm Andrew Paul. And we're the hosts of the Well Endowed Podcast. The Well Endowed Podcast is produced by Edmonton Community Foundation, or ECF as we call it. ECF provides grants to charities through the endowment funds we create and manage with our donors. Hence the title of our show, The Well Endowed Podcast. Every month, we bring you a collection of stories and interviews with fascinating guests who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in. Through these stories, we look at the space where endowments intersect with your communities. So if you're interested in the people and issues impacting your community, check out the wellendowedpodcast.com. Well Endowed Podcast. We've talked about it before. You've heard their ad before. Friends of the network, friends of the pod. Friends of the pod, absolutely. Yes. Even if you don't live locally, of course, there's probably organizations like the Edmonton Community Foundation in your own municipality uh, or nearby. Check it out. See what you might be able to uh, to do to uh, to give back to your communities. Yeah. You could also give back to the Alberta Podcast Network community by going and checking them out at albertapodcastnetwork.com. See all the other wonderful podcasts that are available for your perusal. You can probably find them on your podcatcher of choice while you're there. Maybe give us a little rating and a review. We'd like that. That'd be nice. Yeah. You could also reach out to us on social media. Absolutely. Uh, Pick your poison. We are on uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Goodreads. We are at The Read Along on most of those. You can also send us an email. Absolutely. We are thereadalong at gmail.com. And with that said, as always, we love you very much, and we'll see you next time. 
I really want to know what color Venus Extravagant is. Thank you for joining us on The Read Along with your hosts, Anita and Scott Bourgeois, a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network. All Read Along music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Cover art is by Aaron Beaver. Be sure to join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Read Along, and check out our group on Goodreads.com. <laughs>